At 045, Tassie Ur Henry had also seen the flashing red light on Tariq. Having reported on the walkie-talkie that he had combed Il Gwenok with no sign of life, he was told to investigate. 25 minutes later, he announced that there were 20 escapers ready and waiting. Ur Henry was told to load up and get back to the MGB as fast as possible in view of the deteriorating conditions. Back on ship in the rolling chart room, David Birkin had noticed that the barometer was plummeting. At 0200, a violent squall of wind and rain hit them. At the same time, a radio message had been received from England saying, weather deteriorating rapidly, gale force 6 to 7 approaching your area. The warning was too late. The wind had already increased to force 6 and was now howling through the rigging. Great waves rolling in from the Atlantic were smashing themselves onto the reefs and rocks around them. The sea was a mass of foam, and the engines had to be started to take the strain off the anchor cable. It was a most awe-inspiring and frightening sight. MGB 329 was having her own troubles, and at one ghastly moment she managed to foul 318's anchor cable with her propellers. At 0220... Er Henry reported that all three dinghies with 20 escapers were starting back to their motherships. That, though, was substantially easier said than done. Even getting the escapers on board the dinghies was difficult enough, with the boats rolling and pitching in the powerful surf. The crossing from Tariq to Ilguenek was dangerous at night, even for the local fishermen who knew the whereabouts of all the submerged rocks and were well acquainted with the fierce current which runs between them. For the dinghy crews on that stormy night, the crossing was a nightmare. Hello and welcome to Bloody Violent History. My name is Tom Ashton. Today we're going to talk about a subject close to our hearts on this show. That is what happens when the Brits get in touch with their inner pirate. To help me with this, I'm joined by Colonel Tim Spicer, OBE. Tim had an illustrious career in the army, including commanding his regiment, the 1st Battalion Scots Guards. He then had 20 years running private military security businesses, founding both Sandline International and Aegis Defence Services. He has published A Dangerous Enterprise, Secret War at Sea. And this is our subject today. Colonel, welcome to Bloody Violent History. Thank you. First question, where are we in World War II, what's happening and what are the circumstances leading to the formation of the 15th MGBF, the 15th Motor Gunboat Flotilla? Well, we, we, the story starts really in 1940, um, probably immediately after Dunkirk. Uh, June 1940, the Germans have overrun France. Uh, the remnants of the British Expeditionary Forces back home and perhaps as important, the, the secret intelligence service station in Paris, as indeed throughout all the other occupied countries, has been withdrawn. So Britain is blind and we are very vulnerable. And of course, there was you know, the threat of Germ the Germans storming on across the Channel, which luckily didn't happen. Um, and we had the Battle of Britain. But the imperative in the secret world was to get back into France and Europe, but particularly France, to uh, find out what the Germans are up to. And that led the naval department of the Secret Intelligence Service to think about how they were going to get back. And in a rather ad hoc way, to start with, they, they sent agents using fishing boats. Um, and it was... It was a very uh, adventurous initiative, but it needed to become more formal and more organised. But we have a history of this, haven't we? I believe that Walsingham used uh, fishing boats to spy on the Spanish, and we had uh, trawlers in the First World War chugging around, uh, looking at what the Germans were up to and things like that. So, so that within the sort of circles and navy and so on, this kind of thing had been done before. Yeah, it was absolutely uh, normal. I mean, this is what we Brits are good at. This is a regular or clandestine warfare at its best. And as you say, the the use of boats in the in the process of gathering intelligence is is not new. And indeed, there is a very um, 
a very good precedent for this, which Frank Slocum, who we'll talk about in a minute, no doubt, was aware of during the what the end of the First World War and the Russia, after the Russian Revolution, the Bolshevik takeover in Russia. Um, the Navy or the Secret Intelligence Service in, in, in the sea at the time, Mansfield Cumming, sent um, a naval officer called uh, Agar up to the Baltic with three very um, fast but skimpy patrol boats to, to uh, run a ferry service from Finland to Russia for agents. In fact, it, it didn't work out so well because the agents were completely um, dominated by the Russians. They got out over land. But Agar, being an adventurous, piratical sort, decided to turn his hand to a bit of destruction and he he blew up a or he torpedoed a russian cruiser a bolshevik cruiser and within the space of a week he got a victoria cross and the dso so there was a precedent and frank slocum who we can talk about shortly um knew this he had served with agar in the navy in fact agar stayed in the navy to the end of the second world war and what, so when this happened the first world war was still going on this was after the the russians had uh, had been defeated 1919 oh so, so he got so, his bc yeah right and so he was um, perhaps the sort of the grandpa of this. He was definitely the grandpa of this. And um, the person charged with, with doing this, who I've already mentioned, Captain Frank Slocum, he, he undoubtedly would have sent for the files, if there were any, and said, we, we need to revisit this. And uh, Frank Slocum, so a little bit about him. He, he's, a, he's your standard Navy... He was a he was a naval officer, career naval officer. But in the thirties, um, there were some massive cuts in the armed forces called the Geddes cuts, um, and he was a victim of that. But very quickly picked up by the Secret Intelligence Service and put in charge of their naval section. At this point, nothing to do with gunboats, but you know in charge of liaising with naval intelligence and gathering intelligence on naval matters, matters of shipping. But in 1940, he was tasked with the, um, the given the task of getting people back into France, both by air and by sea. And the air uh, business of landing agents and extracting them expanded much later and it was hived off and given to an air force officer so he concentrated his he created a department within sis um to run these these gunboats this is post dunkirk this is post dunkirk and this doesn't really get off the ground until uh the end of 1940 beginning of 1941 okay so we're still on our own the americans aren't in yet yeah and we haven't had any success anywhere. Alamein is still some way off. We are on our own. We effectively have been thrown out of Europe. And the only success we've had is is the Battle of Britain. The Blitz is raging. Um, the threat of invasion, I think, has receded at this point. Um, but, and, and one of the drivers for the intelligence is the Battle of the Atlantic. The U-boat war is going on. Um, and that supposedly was the only thing that Winston Churchill was actually really afraid of, wasn't it? Exactly. He's quoted as saying, that's the only thing that worried me. And therefore, SIS was told, we need intelligence on German submarines. Luckily, we had Enigma, um, which, of course, wasn't talked about uh, at that stage. And in fact, one of the key sponsors uh, and a favourite character of mine, was an SIS officer called Wilfred Biffy Dunderdale, who had worked very closely with the French and the Poles before the war and brought an Enigma machine to London on the 16th of August 1939, handed it to Stuart Menges, who was C, uh, who immediately gave it to Bletchley Park. So and that was uh, courtesy of the Poles? Uh, courtesy of the Poles, was courtesy it? Courtesy of the Poles. Yeah. And the Poles sort of weaved in and out of this story because they, there were a lot of Poles that stayed in France and formed resistance networks, particularly one called F2, which was run, again, by Biffy Dunderdale because he his department in SAS was charged with liaising with the Vichy intelligence service. And there's a story in there which we might come back to and the Poles, and le later in the war, the Americans, when they came in. 
so it starts off as a intelligence gathering operation. Um, how how and the and the main part is we've talked about Commander Frank Slocum. Um, the people who are going to join this group, the Motor Gunboat Flotilla, um, how big was it? What was their order of battle? How were they well, set up? The order of battle at the beginning was one boat. Um, in fact, Frank Sokum had real problems persuading the Navy to give him some boats. Um, and the Navy were quite jealous about handing out boats that they didn't control. But they gave him Motor Gunboat 314, and that was it to start with commanded by a fellow called um, Dunstan Curtis, uh, who later went on uh, after uh, 1942 to go and work with Ian Fleming's commandos, 30 Assault Unit. Um, so we had the order of battle begins with an office in London staffed by Slocum and a chap called Stephen Mackenzie, who has already had a, a reputation for being a bit of a pirate um, early in the war, um, already had a DSO for, for gunboat work but more aggressive gunboat work rather than uh, intelligence gathering. They set up a, an office in HMS Britannia, the, the Royal Naval College at Dartmouth, and took over the Royal Dart Hotel, which was renamed HMS Akela. And as an aside, it caused a lot of amusement in the war when Lord Hawhaw said they'd sunk HMS Akela. Um, and they, they commandeered a paddle steamer uh, a coastal paddle steamer called the Westward Ho, which was anchored in the River Dart, and that became the sort of mothership. So the gunboat, or the, the one gunboat to start with, uh, would come alongside. Agents would come down for London on the train. The train station uh, on the other side of the Dart, Kingswear, uh, comes right up, right next to the Royal Dart Hotel. The agents were brought, smuggled aboard, not quite blankets on their heads, but nearly. And then sent on their mission. And, and these boats, just uh, uh, can you paint a picture of us, what they're yeah. like, you know, because they're quite sort of sporty bits of kit, aren't they? They're, they are quite sporty. Well, 314, the first one, followed by 318, which was really the workhorse and is the sort of, you know, the mainstay of the flotilla. They were, um, you know, sort of 100 foot long. Uh, they were armed, quite well armed. I mean, they were designed as gunboats for shooting up coastal shipping and things like that. And the armaments remained on board. They were not torpedo boats. They didn't have torpedo tubes. Oh, they weren't wooden then? They were wooden. They were? Uh, yes, they were wooden. Oh. And they were not very seaworthy. Um, some of the, the biggest drama that, that the flotilla had was bad weather in the Channel and coastal conditions in Brittany where they, where they um, went to drop off agents at these pinpoints. Uh, we can talk about that a bit in a minute. But, but big engines. Uh, big engines, quite unreliable, always breaking down. Um, it, 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 these boys struggled. I mean, the the engineers and, and the people in inside the boat were real heroes. And it always seems to be in these, um, when you get these specialist groups, that the, the, the um, army, the navy, the air force, that the, the main stay of the forces really don't like these groups because um, they distract from what they're trying to do and they're sort of seen as tearaways who can't be controlled and so they get hampered by by the sort of the regular guys. Well I think that's that's generally true yes and you can see it with the SAS and, and all those sort of um, specialist units formed in Africa and but the Navy you know the Royal Navy have a bit of a tradition of let's go out and get them. I mean, if you were a frigate captain in the Napoleonic War, your mission was sail the world and kill Frenchmen. Yes, Cochrane uh, was a great example. Cochrane, yeah. yeah. Um, and, of course, you know, the Patrick O'Brien books and all that. So the spirit is there, but the Navy, in spite of that, wanted to do it themselves. They didn't really like the idea of um, these people masquerading as a naval unit, um, although they did give them a, a, core, a quorum of non-commissioned officers, petty officers and the like, who are na proper, full-on, experienced naval ratings. And th this make and, up the 125? Yeah. But the officers were all, to a man, Royal Naval Volunteer Reserve, you know, war service only. And they were a, a, a right bunch of pirates. So we've got uh, these three boats, 
What was the third one? 3148 and... And then, well, 314 was blown up at Saint-Nazaire. Um, unfortunately, because Slocum didn't own it, the Navy said, look, we're mounting this raid. We've got to have it back. We need all the boats we can get. And it was shot to bits. Um, uh, luckily, most of the crew got away, including the skipper, Dunstan Curtis. Then 318 came along, and it was that was the first one that was given to Slocum. He owned it, he commanded it. They had another one. Well, then they, Vosper Thornycroft built some faster boats, better boats, and they were the 5 Series, 501, 502, um, 503. One of them, unfortunately, as it was delivered, was on a test run down to the Scilly Isles with Slocum and a few, you know, the headquarters staff on board, and it blew up petrol vapour in the um, in the bilges. Luckily, nobody was hurt. They could have lost the whole command structure and the boat in one go. Um, and actually, this whole story is is uh, a story of lots of luck. Fluky. Fluky. People in the right place, right time, and, and you know, the fate smiling on them. Um, and then they had two boats. So by the end of the war, by the end of their operations, they had 318 um, and 502. Two and 503. 1942. What happens on these? What kind of <clears throat> missions take place? Well, they start off by um, picking the most inhospitable places on the Brittany coast that you could possibly imagine you'd want to put a boat in there. And you wouldn't want to even put a boat in there in broad daylight because the weather conditions in the winter are atrocious. You know, massive waves coming in from the Atlantic. Um, in relays, a strong tidal stream, and hundreds of jagged rocks. So, not to no- say you know the Germans as well, oh, and the Germans. Yeah. In, but in fact, they were more worried about the weather and the uh, you know the seamanship aspect of it than the Germans, because they quite often pick these pinpoints underneath the noses of the Germans, because the you know they they're probably more slack under the, under their own positions and dozy in the middle of the night than they would be elsewhere, patrolling along cliffs and beaches. So they, they, they sort of overcame that. And then I think we, we'll talk about David Birkin, who was the key to this navigation, which was the, the real strong point of this whole operation, getting to the right place at the right time, quietly, without anybody knowing, and getting out again. And they were under strict orders not to engage the enemy, unless absolutely necessary. And the, the weapons they've got to engage are, what, what sort of 30, 30, millimeter 30 millimeter cannons? 20 millimeter cannons, machine guns, uh, quite heavily armed. They could, they could give a good account of themselves if they had to. But as I said, they were told, do not engage. We don't want the Germans to, to work out what we're doing. No, but it must have uh, helped with confidence. Yes, it did. And they only actually had one engagement throughout the whole war. They were, they were coming out and they stumbled across four armed trawlers who opened fire at them as they had to return fire. And the only casualty of the war, um, an able seaman, um, was killed in that action. He was the only casualty throughout the whole war. So having identified the pinpoint, um, their first mission was to put SIS agents ashore because SOE didn't exist at this stage. Gradually, SOE was formed, I think, at the end of 1940, beginning of 41, and that caused real interdepartmental strife. Um, SIS didn't like them. They thought they were new boys. And also, but more important than that, more important than just the sort of new boy aspect, was the fact that SOE's remit, if you remember, Winston Churchill said, set Europe ablaze. Butcher and bolt, isn't it? Butcher and bolt. And that is not conducive to spying because it stirs up a hornet's nest. And SIS quite rightly said, look, if you're, going to, if you're going to be blowing up, you know, doing sabotage and killing sentries in where we've got agents reporting on the U-boats, like Brest, like Saint-Nazaire, like uh, all, all, all the sort of Brittany ports, what is going to happen? Suddenly there's going to be a huge upsurge in enemy activity. And either deliberately or by accident, our agents are going to be swept up in this and the intelligence will stop flowing. So they were quite, and the Navy agreed with them. So there was a little bit of a hiatus at the beginning where SOE was sort of kept at arm's length. But in the end, uh, the flotilla serviced SOE, SIS, 
MI9, the escape organisation, which was actually an adjunct to SIS, uh, and non-contentious because it was passive, wasn't, you know. Um, and some of the early operations, SOE wanted them to put ashore canisters of weapons in caches for use for the resistance to pick up. And, of course, the flotilla's line was, why do we want to hump, you know, 80 pounds of container ashore, bury it in sand, which may or may not be there tomorrow, um, and you to come and collect the weapons? Why don't we just parachute them in behind the restricted zone, the coastal restricted zone? So they were quite, you know, there, were, there was a lot of problems about that. Um, so the early operations were some agent dropping, uh, some early escape line work, although the escape lines into Brittany hadn't really been formed yet. Everybody went across the Pyrenees. Yes. Was this um, some of the leftovers from Dunkirk and Cal or, um, it, uh, Cherbourg or Cal Calais? Calais. Calais. The they were brigade. picking up a few yes, the, waves and strays. There were a lot of waves and strays. There were quite a lot of poles, quite a lot of European waves and strays. Um, some pilots, but not at this stage many, because you know we hadn't really started the bombing campaign. Um, and then there was this caching exercise for SOE, which was not popular and actually was abandoned. Um, there's a funny story actually. The the one of the main the main centres in Brittany, the town of Longlis, um, suddenly there was a sort of proliferation of children eating Cadbury's chocolate. And, uh, and sort of Maltesers and Mars bars and things. Uh, and, of course, the resistance went nuts, and they found out where it had come from. And what had happened is one of these containers on the beach had, had sort of washed away, and somebody opened it up, and they were much more interested in the sweets than they were the hand grenades. So they had to quickly... Um, Persuade everybody in the local area to stop eating British sweets. To swallow get, their Maltesers. Swallow their Maltesers. <laughs> and so they got the local vicar in the church to, uh, on Sunday, because they're quite heavily religious. This sort of, but he gave his sermon in Breton, Breton. So it was a sort of Gaelic version of French, and basically said, get rid of the sweets. And, of course, the Germans didn't understand he it. He was sitting there singing, yeah. singing their hymns, unaware of the yeah. hidden message. Exactly. For once, a sermon was of use. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So, so they get a start, not a bad start actually. I mean, given that anything new is is always going to be under slightly under a mm. question mark, isn't it? Um, do the, is there a moment where they kind of prove that they are they're good at what they do and that they're important? There is. Um, I'll come. To, I'll come to that in a minute, if I may, because yeah. that's that's the time when three one four was gone. 318 was the, the workhorse and the only boat, and it carried out mission after mission, and they really did prove their worth, which is why they got the two additional gunboats. But I, I should tell you, um, one of their first missions was the most extraordinary thing you can... You, I mean, you, if you didn't know it was true, you'd think this is real flight of fantasy, because... Uh, and it involves 314. There was a French lady called Mathilde Carré, who is quite infamous and she was a, a bit of a horizontal enthusiast is i think how i put it and was ma made friends was with... that deep cover or <laughs> <laughs> um or her personal preference i think it was a bit of both but she hooked up with a, a very dashing pole who was running a network in one of the very early networks in, in France in 1940 called Inter-Ally. And they actually had radio sets because the Poles were really jacked up. They built radio sets. They'd worked out how to get in touch with London. And they were producing very high-grade intelligence, which was going to Biffy Dunderdale in London. So she hooked up with this chap, a uh, Polish officer called Zinolowski, and they ran this network very successfully. And she was his, if you like, chief of staff. And she collated and, and wrote, excellent reports, of which there are hundreds, hundreds and hundreds documented. And she's a Pole, but in France. No, she is French. She's French. And yeah. Right. She yeah, was a bit of a sort of wild card, really. And her Polish friend at this stage, Zenolowski, creates conditions which you really shouldn't create in an intelligence network. He brought in another girl. Disaster. And so there was tension inside the, the, the whole setup. Anyway, 
the Germans started to, to penetrate, the Abwehr, not the Gestapo, started to penetrate into this network and did a roundup in Paris, including uh, Mathilde Carey. And she was arrested by a chap called Hugo Bleicher, Sergeant Hugo Bleicher of the Abwehr, who was a, quite a junior officer, but pretty smart. Um, he slammed her into a cell in Friend Prison overnight. She wasn't beaten up, she wasn't tortured, but the cell was pretty unpleasant, blood and, and you know, pee all over the place, and she wasn't fed. And she was not robust enough to withstand that. And the next morning he invited her to breakfast, gave her a hot croissant, offered her a cigarette, smell of coffee. You can see the scene. By that night, she was his lover. So she, I told you she was an enthusiast. And she betrayed the whole network. And... Um, the story gets even more complicated. Bleicher is then, he was very happy with that, uh, dispersed the network. Some of them got away, some of them didn't. Was that on the the basis that you're going to have to tell at some point so you give your network long enough to to escape? No, she she just cracked. Um, he said, look, we're going to have to shoot you, so you might as well work for us and we'll pay you. And it, it she didn't hold out for 72 hours so people could, get away, which is really what you're alluding to, which is, is a sort of correct process. Even if you're being um, you're having your fingernails pulled out, you should probably hold out for a bit. But um, so she, Bleicher said to her, look, I've got my ha handle on an SOE network called Autogyro, and it, we know who's running it. He's a French aristocrat called Pierre de Vancourt. I want you to get close to him. I want to get into this. So... She does that. She gets hold of an SOE agent called Ben Cowburn, who was very successful, survived the war, two military crosses. And she gets alongside the bomb corps. Uh, we don't know whether literally or just metaphorically. But he then she has a sort of change of heart, and she admits to him that she's a double. The bomb corps think, you know, thinks, that's it, goes to Cowburn, this is not good news. But I have a plan, a cunning plan. And he said to Le Carre, and I'm oversimplifying this, go back to Bleicher and say you have the opportunity of going to London and penetrating British intelligence. And you will come back with a senior British intelligence officer who's going to organise all the networks in France. And Bleicher swallowed it. So we have the most ridiculous situation where, under German control, um, Cowburn, who's, who wants to get back to England, Mathilde Carey and de Vancourt go to Brittany to a pinpoint on the beach to be picked up by 314. First pickup doesn't work for some reason. The, you know, the wrong place, wrong time. And the Abwehr know this. Oh, they're watching. They're mm. watching the whole thing. In fact, they go back... And they do it again. And the second time, Sub-Lieutenant Ivan Black comes ashore and with two agents, and they go off on their, uh, off on their travels. Le Carre and, um, sorry, Carre, and Devoncourt get on the boat and Cowburn. Actually, Cowburn doesn't. He, he legs it after the, the first failed attempt. He says, this is madness, because he knows they're under German control. And they have absurd things where they bump into sentries and there's a sort of... Hello, hello, type. I haven't seen you. Keep yes, walking. Keep walking. Exactly that sort of stuff. However, eventually they get they get to um, they get onto the gunboat. They get to Dartmouth. Uh, they're taken to London, where she is immediately sort of put under control. Not arrested. She's put in a house, bugged to the nines, and interrogated and debriefed and everything else. And then there is a sort of what shall we do with her? Uh, Devoncourt goes back actually and and gets arrested, but and and the pole he's out of it altogether. Isn't no, he? he's another interesting story. He get, when he was caught, he gets turned, and he became Agent Brutus, which you know it's quite a well known story, and I think Ben McIntyre's written a book about it. He comes to London to the poles, and immediately confesses, and then he's he becomes Agent Brutus and is put in the double cross system, you know the sort of deception operations, and is played back to the Germans. Carrie, they can't play back for whatever reason. She doesn't have a radio set or you know, no, no way of communicating. 
so she's kept um, in this flat in uh, Bayswater, Bayswater Road and then eventually put in Holloway. And from Holloway, she goes to Aylesbury. And at the end of the war, she's handed back to the French. And, of course, she did. She was responsible for the death of a lot of people, or well, certainly their incarceration. And the French sentenced her to death, uh, which is then commuted, and she goes and lives in a convent. You know, she, she withdraws from life. But the interesting thing is that that whole operation was under the control of the Germans. And so Slocum in London is saying, well, they now know our methodology. We've got to be even more careful and more uh, obtuse in the way that we do things. So do they have a complete change of uh, the way they operate and the place they're going to pull the people out, or do they just have to adapt to what they already know how to do? Well, I think they become more professional. They, the, the, the carry pickup was on a beach, you know, sort of nice Brittany sandy beach, because it was not difficult, because there was going to be no interference. Um, and and this, is, this is the actual gunboat sort of sliding in onto the sand? No, it, the anchor's offshore using a rope anchor, uh, not an anchor chain, but a rope one for keeping quiet. And so how they adapt their methodology is they go into the... the I mentioned earlier on these pinpoints were in the worst possible place you could imagine for navigation. That's what they do. They, they sort of do things that they think the Germans would not believe in very difficult places under their noses. And they continue to operate, but they do it in a bit more sophisticated way. And they now have proper, what they call surf boats, which are carried on the gunboat. The gunboat anchors off quite a long way, even up to a mile. And they row ashore, you know, silently. And then when they're on the shore, if there are cliffs and so on, do they have tra are they trained to get their no, people up the cliffs? No, their job is purely to get the boat on onto the shingle or the rocky outcrop or whatever it is and the resistance groups who are the other half of this the organizations in france get the people to the boat and then ferry ferry the new the, the new arrivals um back to safe houses and then onwards uh, into their onto their missions they were incredibly lucky never to have been met by a hail of lead from a betrayed resistance group and the germans would be waiting in ambush for them they were very lucky I think the, the, the operational security on the French side for this particular mission was very good. There was a, a chap who, who, who a, French, a Frenchman called um, Pierre Hontic, who ran the sort of the French side of the pinpoints and getting the agents and getting the secret um, papers and everything to the pinpoint. And he was an extraordinary character. He, he had been a, a communist, a young communist um, before the war. But he teamed up, he, he then joined the Chasseur Alpin and fought in, in Norway in 1940. And his officer uh, was a chap called Claude Lamiro, who was, couldn't have been more you know, diametrically of opposite. A gent, he was a gent, yeah. you know, hardcore Catholic. Um, anyway, they teamed up and, and set up this network called Jade Fitzroy, which was one of Biffy's best networks. And they ensured that their operational security was, t you know, watertight. And they were never were they never betrayed. Well, they had a traitor, just jumping ahead to 44. One of the um, key members of the Jade Fitzroy network was a chap called Amade Roland, who owned the local cafe in Long Lise. Um, not quite like René, but much more <laughs> professional. Always a good cover. Um, and... He the, the wireless set that they contacted London was in the attic. You know, it was a, it was a classic resistance thing. The radio's in the attic. Did it, did it. Yeah. Um, but they were very careful. They always had people out looking for detector bands and, and watching for Germans. But it was great to have Germans in the, in the cafe because, you know, they were relaxing, so there wasn't going to be a sort of problem. And this was very successful till the end of the war. Well, it's amazing that they didn't get busted. Because, I mean, the the average um, time for catching these uh, the SOE agents, radio operators, was six weeks. Yeah. Well, these were Frenchmen. They didn't have an SOE operator. This was an SIS operation. So they were much more well-trained, and they were locals. So they could see if something was wrong. And I think one of the mistakes the SOE radio operators made was... 
almost trying to be too clever and hiding away in obscure places where the detector vans could find them. You know, if you're right under their noses and you're very careful about your transmission time, you probably get away with it. And they, they sent many radio things. But the, the, you, you asked if they were betrayed. At some point, they started to bring in weapons to because they knew that come D-Day, they were going to start shooting. And they hid them in the billiard table uh, in the cafe, in the middle of the, you know, the Germans playing billiards or pool or whatever. Whatever, Inside is the transit hide with the weapons. And one day in early 44, they were all, you know, playing around in the cafe. And suddenly the Gestapo arrived, walked straight to the table, opened it up, nothing in there. 30 minutes earlier, there would have been. they just moved it. So they knew they had a traitor. And quite an interesting um, adjunct to that story is that when I was doing the research for this book, I met the last living member of the Jade Fitzroy network in Lonlis, uh, a chap called Monsieur Tongi, who was about 80-odd years old. He had been 15 at the time. His father was mainstay of transporting people and stuff. He ran a transport business, so... Uh, and I said to him, but weren't you a bit young to join the resistance? And he said, um, well, the Germans closed my school, so what else would you do, age 15, but join the resistance? So he worked with his dad, but it, more importantly, I asked him about the traitor, and he he said, we never speak of it. Um, and I sort of asked around, and I said, did you find him? Did you kill him? And it came out that actually what happened was they knew who it was, but not until after the war. So giving him one in the back of the head was probably off the agenda. So they sent him to Coventry forever. Right. He was he couldn't get his car fixed. He was a local. And he just, was a local. Right. People would cross the road. He wouldn't serve him in shops. Couldn't get his phone. Yeah, he was completely ostracised. And I think you know, eventually he, he... I don't know what happened to him, but you know, it was a pretty miserable existence. But a lot of people after the war were killed, weren't they? I mean, uh, the collaborators. I, I think there was the, a lot of... Because the French... Official figures are quite low, but the unofficial ones are much higher. Well, I think there was a period of time between June 1944 and the liberation of France, sort of August time. There was probably a lot of retribution. And I suspect, yes, a lot of collaborators were killed. Um, a lot of traitors were killed. I think Mathilde Carey was lucky she was in England. Um, but I suspect there was a bit of scores, you know, I don't. I don't like him. He he's upset me. Oh, there the, were the, a lot of politics, wasn't there? Because mm. there was the communists and the yeah and the Catholics. Exactly. Well, one one interesting another adjunct to this is that Biffy Dunderdale, as well as running these networks in France, was also responsible for liaising with the Vichy intelligence services, who had said in 1940, he having been the head of station in Paris, look, we're going to we we're, we're going to join Vichy, but we're really working for you, uh, and that's a completely different story which is the next book. But he had to send is, somebody... Is that, that is your next book, is it? That is yes. the next book. Oh, well, we'll have you back for that <laughs> one. <laughs> um, but they had to persuade de Gaulle that these guys were not traitors. They were actually working for the Allies. And right. that was quite a hard task. Well, it's a hard task with, uh, with de Gaulle for anything, I think. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, he came to visit Bomber Command... Uh, when my grandfather was in, he said that my grandfather said the two people who he really had a problem with who came to visit, there were only two. One was Randolph Churchill, son of, who he threw out for being drunk, <laughs> and the other was de Gaulle. Anyway. Well, de Gaulle is, I think, on record as saying early in 1940, only the British could give me an office that I can only enter through Waterloo Place and is within sight of Trafalgar Square. <laughs> I, bought, I don't know if you've seen outside Victoria Station, there's a, um, a sort of miniature copy of Big Ben. Yes. And I've always thought, do you not realise why we've been given this by the French? I mean, it's such an obvious... <laughs> yeah. Why they put it there, you know, it's like yeah. you're, you're English with your little bends. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, enough of that. Back, OK, so back to the tales of Daring Do. Yes. Um, so I think I've established that the French side was was very effective. And how it ended up was that there was there was two-way traffic. I mean, this was a real sort of, not quite an expressway, but if you were a pilot shot down, you could be back in England in about a week. Um, 
because the escape lines were becoming very sophisticated. And indeed, some of the very important gunboat operations took place in support of a, a line called Shelburne, uh, which was run by two Canadians. And then um, you know, there is, I think the fastest record was a Spitfire pilot, was back in three days. And it, so it got very sophisticated, but the Germans were, wanted to get it. But, um, and I assume the RAF pilots would, to some extent, be briefed, would they, about what, well, what to do when they learn how to yes, make contact? Yes, I mean, they all had, you know, as things became more sophisticated, they had escape kits, they had um, passport-sized photographs in black and white that you know they could put on false documents. It, it became a very standard procedure, this, this escape and evasion training. And, of course, the imperative started to switch... I think in '43 to the escape lines, more more so than SOE operations, because the air operations were, were at this stage very sophisticated, and Pierre so, Hontic managed those as well. Right. This is getting an agent into in, into in, France, and then you can fly them half, you know, deep into country. And well, you could the, the Lysander aircraft, which they use primarily, could land in a you know in a, in a cornfield or a stubble field, and it could reach as far east in France as you wanted to. And there are records of Lysander operations going into Poland. The imperative to get aircrew back in, in actually in Harris's bomber ca- campaign, we need trained pilots and bomb aimers back as soon as possible because we're going to run out. And therefore, it was very high priority. And so the escape lines were working 19 to the dozen. And of course, the, uh, the older escape lines, the Pat line, and um, comet line and yeah. comet yes. went all the way to the Pyrenees, and that took time. And then yeah, you had um, to walk across the Pyrenees. Then you had to deal with the Spanish. Then you had to get them to Lisbon. Then you had to get them home. Whereas if they got to Brittany, their time evading the Germans was shorter, and the pickup was easy. You, know, you didn't have to spend weeks getting back. And there's quite a difference between pilots shot down and returned back via the. Shelburne line and prisoners of war escaping from Starlag 13. Yes, I think I think by this stage of the war there are very few escaped POWs um, because the POW camps by this stage were in Germany and Poland a long way from the French coast and I think the only escapers that were handled by these lines were well, they were they were Either agents really on the run, so if, you know they were blown, they had to get out, or families, or people that the French government, the Free French government, wanted out, um, in order to either put them back in uh, as as sort of key organisers. Um, there are some towards the end of the nineteen forty four, or pre to D Day, some SAS soldiers. Um, who'd been parachuted in to help the resistance, uh, and a couple of things went wrong. They had to be got out, um, French SAS particularly. And, so so and it's, it's, it's really downed pilots before they're captured, so they're evaders rather than escapers, and still SOE and SIS agents. And would they have been subject to Hitler's commando order? Yes. So if they were caught, they, would just, they could be shot? Yeah. If we jump back in time... A minute to the Mathilde Carey thing, and I told you Sub Lieutenant Ivan Black came ashore. He was captured, but de Vomkor negotiated with Bleicher and said, "You must treat, treat this man as a prisoner of war. He's a naval officer, and the two agents with him as well. This is the deal." And Bleicher stuck to it, and they were put. Um, Black went to Colditz, even though Bleicher was only a sergeant. I think, well, he was his his stock was rising at this stage because he was running this operation. Um, but and I suppose being an, a sergeant in the Abwehr is probably you know yeah, it, the rank is it's not like being a sergeant in the you know in a normal regiment exactly. So I think we need to hear a couple more stories about um, what they got up to, both running in SOE agents and pulling out damned pilots. Right. Okay. I'm going to tell you. What, what, about what's called the Abarach saga. But before I do that, can I just um, give you a, 
a second or two on David Birkin because he's become yes, the, the, the key fellow in all this. Now, you remember I said that navigation was the critical skill um, to get to the right place at the right time uh, and get ashore and get out again. Uh, everyone will be very, very au courant with that because this SAS um, documentary on the telly at the moment, they make uh, a lot of the the navigators particularly yeah. that were grabbed from the long-range desert group. Well, Birkin was sort of of that mould. He he came from a very well-to-do family in Nottingham. The lace business was the Birkin's business. And he um, was very sickly. Before the war, he had had 30 operations, ear, nose and throat operations. And he was marked down unfit for military service. And he said, to hell with this. And he went off and got himself qualified at um, the Marconi Radio School. So he had a sort of ticket to be a radio operator. And he wangled his way into the Navy as an ordinary radio operator. And they sort of overlooked the fact that he was not quite fit enough. That, combined with the fact he got seasick looking at a cup of tea, you know, he was just completely unsuited for this work. And he then spent his whole time... as. As he, as he recounts, sort of digging wrens, latrines and things like that. And then he got measles and he went to the Hasler Military Hospital in Portsmouth. And This is all before the war? This No, this is the beginning of the war. Right. This is 1940. He sort of um, wangled his way in, but he wasn't really getting anywhere. And behind the scenes, he, he was friendly with Mountbatten and, I mean, socially with Mountbatten and Brendan Bracken. And it is quite clear he pulled some strings. And one day he was summoned to London um, and interviewed by Frank Slocum, who gave him a chance um, and said, well, I'm going to send you on a navigation course. And because David Birkin was very good at maths and a brilliant artist, he, he got his head around how to navigate. Um, and it was old school navigation, no GPS, yeah. no machinery. It was yeah. charts and tide tables and all that. And his navigating no notebook is a work of art. You know, he'd really fine-tune the calculations and draw pictures of them. And then he would draw pictures, of which there are quite a lot in this book, of what the rocks they were aiming for would look like. And his 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 sort of MO was to aim for a, an isolated rock that you could recognise in the middle of the night offshore, of which there were plenty along the Brittany coast. Hit that and then take a bearing into the pinpoint. It worked every single time. It never failed. And you can see, if you look online, I mean, he's a good-looking guy, but with a patch on one eye. He, so he, he's a pirate. He looked the part. Yeah. Um, he also married um, uh, uh, Judy Campbell, who's, who was an actress. She was a sort of Noel Card um, muse. And she's also the lady who sang uh, Nightingale Sings in Berkeley Square. So they were quite an exotic right. couple. And, of course, for us schoolboys of the 70s, uh, their <laughs> daughter was Jane Birkin. Yes. So jeté all over. Enough said about yeah. that. But, uh, no, I mean, he, 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 he was a very... Uh, they were an exotic couple, and he was just damn good at his job and very understated. And he went on nearly every mission. I think they did something like 50 missions, of which he did 30. So... We have this now, a more sophisticated, very skilled uh, group of men operating into France. He, sorry, he's the nav navigator. Who's the skipper of...? of uh, a three, 318 is uh, a chap called Jan McCoyd Mason. And he, um, he, he pretty much remained the skipper throughout the war. A very, very capable guy. But David Birkin, just to put it in context, was the navigating officer of the flotilla which there were two, and depending on the mission who was available, one of the navigating officers would go with the skipper. Skipper, you know, commanded the boat, commanded the operation, but Birkin's job was to get him there, uh, and without, without the navigation, there was no mission. So if we jump forward to 1943, I've already mentioned the imperative to get aircrew out, and there were agents, you know, it was becoming a big business, if you like. There was a place in Brittany called Aberach, the Aberach Estuary. Very inhospitable. And at the mouth of the estuary, 
um, there are three uninhabited islands and a beach. And what was happening is that Pierre Hontig was accumulating people and classified intelligence to the point where he had to get it out. And so they started to run missions in, in uh, October forty-three to, to get these people out. And some of, some of them, one of them went very badly wrong, where a chap called Mike Pollard was the first lieutenant of 318 took some people ashore, and the weather was so bad they capsized and they got stuck ashore. For the dinghy crews on that stormy night, the crossing was a nightmare. On Tassie Er Henry's boat, the bung was knocked out on a rock and he had to stuff his naval cap into the hole to stop it from sinking. From Er Henry's message that they were on their way, and with the sea getting worse by the minute, no further word was heard from him over the walkie-talkie. If nerves weren't jangled enough, at 0335, 318's electrics were short-circuited from deluges of seawater and pelting rain. This was marked by its gun buzzers blaring out in unison and the navigation lights switching themselves on. The only way to stop the noise and extinguish the lights was to cut the wires. 0418. The decision was made that with dawn coming up they could wait no longer. Not only would everyone get caught, but the pinpoint would forever be compromised if they were spotted by the Germans. But just as they weighed anchor and began to turn for home, one of the dinghies was sighted astern. With the heavy seas breaking over her, she was making no progress at all. 318 dropped astern towards the helpless boat and the reef, which she had just negotiated. A line was thrown, the wind hurled it back. Scrambling nets were lowered as the gunboat and dinghy bumped into each other. With all available hands on deck, and with the jagged reef getting closer every second, the men were finally dragged out and the sinking boat pulled on board. In total, seven out of twenty escapers had been rescued, with Lieutenant Henry and his two oarsmen safe. But that success had come at a heavy cost. Thirteen escapers, two agents and five sailors, including Mike Pollard, the first lieutenant, were left behind and two dinghies had been wrecked in the process. As MGB 318 started up the Ebba Benoit Channel at 0450, on the long run back to England, they could see a red lamp flashing from the island behind. At least they could return home, knowing that those left behind were safe. An extract from A Dangerous Enterprise by Colonel Tim Spicer. So you had, at this stage, four um, members of the flotilla, um, Pollard and three, stuck ashore. All the airmen that were coming out couldn't get out. All the classified mail. And it was about to become a problem. That's the sort of thing where the capacity to hide them in and around this town of Longlees was at bursting point. So they ran a series of missions, and actually it took them four goes to get them out finally on christmas eve 1943 they got them all out the whole lot in one go was it all to do with a new moon and uh, cloudy no they didn't they couldn't they operated when the moon was down yes so uh, they had to wait it was purely weather and coincidence and in the end they had to disguise all the people going out as seaweed gatherers because the industry in this area was gathering seaweed to turn into whatever you turn seaweed into. I think it goes into paint and fertilising. Yeah. Yeah. But right under the nose of the Germans, they had carts and people raking seaweed. Those are sort of baldricks. Absolutely like that. <laughs> and they got them out to these islands, but they had to do it three times, out and back, and they never got caught. And, eventually, and, and at one stage... Hontic said to Pollard, I'm taking you to Paris because I think I can get you out on a Lysander and you've got to get back. And this is quite important for the, the sort of postscript of this particular story. So he goes with some of Hontic's men to Paris and he sees people in the resistance safe house and then they say, no, sorry, can't get you out on a Lysander, go back to Brittany. And eventually he comes out on this mission uh, on, on Christmas Eve. So all is, you know, all's well that ends well. They get all the intelligence back, they get a load of pilots, they get the crew back, and that's that. And poor old Pollard, 
um, his he's summoned to the to the sort of Ted Davis, who's the, who's the skipper in in Brittany, and said, "Look, I'm sorry, mate, but you've got to leave. We're going to you're going to have to go somewhere else in the navy um, because you have been exposed to too much of the resistance organization in Brittany and Paris, and we can't send you, can't risk you going back." In fact, the backstory is that Frank Slocum was furious with him for going to Paris and leaving his naval ratings in Brittany, the sort of officer leadership thing. I think it was rather harsh, actually. Um, but he, he was fine. The other thing he was allowed to do... So he headed off and... He went off to work else. in a cruiser, you know, yeah. a sort of normal Navy. But the one thing that was um, well done is that while he was in, Paris, in, in France, his mother died. And he, the family could not believe that he did not come to the funeral. And he couldn't tell them. So he said, I have to, you know, you, OK, I'm going to go, but you have to let me tell them what, what I was doing. So he was allowed to do that. The 6th of June, 1944, takes place D-Day. How does that affect them? Well, before D-Day, they, they put a stop on operations from about... March because it was too risky. You know, everything depended on D-Day being successful and anybody who had any inkling of what was going on was forbidden from going to France. I mean, agents were, you know, they didn't send many agents in. So, and they stopped the Shelburne escape uh, line uh, uh, out of a place called Cluar. Everyone so just was, had to wait. Everybody lie low. And one of the gunboats in this lull period, 502, uh, commanded by Ronnie Seddon, with Guy Hamilton as his first lieutenant. Guy Hamilton later became director of three of the Bond films. I'll tell you a story about that at the end. One, one of the little vignettes in Goldfinger is straight out of this. Um, it was sent to uh, Lowick in the Shetlands because Slocum wasn't just focused on France. He ran clandestine naval operations from North Norway to the Aegean. And SIS had a very effective coast-watching network on the Norwegian coast, looking for German shipping. Very effective. And some of them were under a lot of pressure to get out because the Germans were onto them. So they sent 501 up there on the 1st or 2nd of June, nobody knowing that 6th of June was going to be critical, night of the 5th, 6th. Uh, and they did a, a pinpoint job and rescued one of these SIS coast-watching teams, came back, and then came back down to Dartmouth. And as they were coming back, they they had a transistor radio, which was quite a rarity on board, that had been given to them by... They were very friendly with the girls at the Windmill Theatre, who used to be brought down for parties. Their mascots. Their mascots. Um, they heard the news as they were coming into Dartmouth. They heard the news that D-Day had taken place. And in fact, after D-Day, they did a few more, um, mostly bringing out pilots and, and others. But work started to slack off. They had, a, they had a day where they went across in daylight, I think in August, to meet all their chums in the resistance for a party on the beach, of which David Birkin recounts that much Calvados was drunk. Good. Um, and, and then the boats were taken lock, stock and barrel, 318 was retired because it was completely clapped out. The The fast ones were taken up to Aberdeen and Lowick and kept running the Norwegian operation. Um, and there's a very sad postscript uh, at the end, after the end of the war, which I can go into now if you want. Yeah. But, so I, I said earlier on that there were no casualties except one, um, this poor able seaman in that contact with the, with the with the trawlers. War in Europe had finished... And so the gunboats were being prepared to go to the Far East. And an order came down from the government saying, look, we have to run a mission to Stockholm from Aberdeen to say thank you to the Swedes, who had been more than helpful on, on the production of steel and ball bearings and, and you know, had, had not been entirely neutral. And so they took a whole load of visitors on 502, I think it was, 502, um, to set off to go to Stockholm. Why wouldn't they just fly them? Who knows? Pass. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, yes, logic would say it might take you an hour and a half in a plane rather than a day and a half on the gunboats. Yeah. Sadly, on the way out, it hit a, a, a rogue mine, you know, a mine that had broken off its cable and, and it blew it up and sank and killed everybody on board except two people. And they were both badly hurt. And they were eventually found because you know, the thing wasn't responding to... And it wasn't sophisticated like, like things are now, where you, you, you find out somebody's gone missing immediately. This took a few days. So that was a sad postscript um, to a very successful war. Did they win any medals, these characters? They did. Um, if you accept that... I mean, understanding they weren't really a naval unit, they belonged to SIS, but they were classed as a naval unit. In, in the sort of ranking, they were the most decorated unit in the war. Of the 125 of them, between 50 and 70, I can't remember the exact figure, had medals, and some of them had two, ranging from DSOs, double DSOs, Distinguished Service Cross, for most of the officers, and most of the ratings, certainly all the petty officers and others, had a Distinguished Service Medal. So right. sort of MC equi- MCMM equivalents. Yes. Highly decorated. Um, and... When they operated, I mean, we did talk about this a little, but um, when they were operating in France, d- did they have any issues with reprisals from the Germans when they, where they were doing their operations? They were lucky. Um, there were reprisals, but focused really on what the, the, the French resistance active yes, yeah. SOE networks were doing, not directly related to the gunboat activities except one, um, the Shelburne line used a farmhouse as a staging point uh, on the, on the, above the cliff where the pinpoint was. And um, they had some quite close scrapes there. German, in fact, the, the, the Germans, in inverted commas, guarding that bit of the coast were actually what Russians, what were called Vlazov Russians. Russians who... Sort of who, Russian fascists. Russian fascists. And, of course, they were... That's one of the reasons why they picked the pinpoint, because they weren't exactly... Tip-top, keen. <laughs> um, keen people. But they used to come to the farmhouse occasionally drunk and demand drink and you know, just sort of bad behaviour. And occasionally they, were, they had people in the house, so they had to nip up in the roof. Eventually they were caught. They were bringing out a, a gang of a French SAS. This is towards, I, I think, just before D-Day. Um, and there was a bit of a shootout and trouble and... Then they they thought they were going to be for real trouble, but actually didn't materialise. But the Germans came two days later and burnt the farm down. So the farm was the only reply, reprisal. None none of the escape line people were lined up and shot or deported. Okay, like so many organisations and units, when the war was over, especially when the Far East was over, um, that what happened to them? Did they get put back, integrated into the Navy, or were they just disbanded? No, quite a lot of the officers joined SIS. David Birkin was offered, um, I've seen his offer letter, which is a masterpiece of failed speech, Um, and he decided no, he'd had enough. His health wasn't brilliant. He He wanted to become a farmer and do his painting, and actually gave up farming and worked a lot with the rehabilitation of offenders, and he just had a quiet life. Quite a lot of the others joined SIS um, and stayed there for full, full-time full careers. And Frank Slocum? He stayed. He became a head of station in Norway. Um, I don't know when he retired, but, but they, you know, they all... Um, Ted Davis, who was his sort of number two, the head, head of um, uh, the SIS st- station in, in the Naval College, you know, the, the headquarters of the gunboats, yeah. he was... The fellow who took Buster Crab down to Portsmouth Harbour to to look at look at the Russian cruiser. Yes, we we have all, him mentioned in a previous podcast. He and he just vanished. Who Crab? Crab yeah, Crab, yeah. Crab vanished. Uh, you know, there are so many theories about him. But Ted Davis was his conducting officer right. and had a heart attack while it was happening, but still managed to tear the page out of the hotel registry and you know, get Push the police, on. get the police to go around and say you, none of this happened. Did it? 
Thank you, Colonel. That was a brilliant example of a few brave men at great odds to themselves making an important and vital difference to the prosecution of the war against Nazi Germany. So it goes. You have been listening to Bloody Violent History, Colonel Tim Spicer's book about the 15 motor gunboat flotilla, a dangerous enterprise, secret war at sea, is published by Everyman Library Barbreck. Details are in the show notes. Please pass this podcast on to a friend to help spread the word. You can contact me at talkoutbloodyviolenthistory.com. Thank you and good luck. <laughs>